you're just a small part of a much, much bigger show. You as an individual and us as a species, you know, that we are just one of the grand experiments that the Earth has heaved up upon, you know, the shore to see if we would work out. And if we don't work out, we don't. Hello and welcome to Farm On the Podcast. I'm Joe Phillips and once again I'm joined by my co-host Vanessa Beck. Hey, thanks for having me back. It's great to have you back, Beck. Today we're interviewing a friend of mine, Gavin Van Horn, who's also a really talented nature writer. And I think recently you had uh, the privilege of uh, meeting Gavin somewhere, right? Yeah, I did. I went up to Evanston and he was hosting an ecological walk and reading and so he took us along the canal and read to us at different spots as we looked out for wildlife and we had a great experience just listening to him read Uh, and we also had a quirky experience where we were crossing across a bridge and he was talking about a blue-winged crane or heron heron a blue-winged heron Heron. and we went onto the bridge and he said and sometimes if you're lucky and you stand here you will see a blue-winged heron and out from under the bridge at that exact moment flew a blue-winged heron no yeah like he'd paid him to do it like when you hear the words blue-winged heron fly out and that's what he did (laughs) and he did pay the heron afterwards afterwards with mackerel Uh uh-huh holy mackerel um (laughs) and so how do you but how do you know gavin well uh, we go back i i had had a i had a piece that i was shopping around it was an interview that i don't done with my friend matt willie and um he published it on his uh blog at the center for humans and nature where he works here in Chicago. We have a lot in common. We both happen to be from Oklahoma, and um, we both have this weird interest in Zen and Eastern philosophy. So um, yeah, we've we've become really good friends, but um, I'm just honored to know him as a writer too. He's just a really talented guy. Fantastic, so Oklahoma boys in Chicago. I know, what are the odds? So in the podcast, we mainly talk about his new upcoming book called Channel Coyotes. Um, but we also talk about um, the book that I think he read from when that you were talking about called Wildness, which he co-edited, um, and it features some uh, essays by uh, writers such as Wes Jackson and Joel Salatin and others. And we talk about the book City Creatures, which is a really impressive uh, compilation of art and poetry and nature writing. And yeah, and that's how we start off the podcast, by Gavin giving me a hard time because I dinged his uh, otherwise perfect review of the book on Amazon. But I think I do a pretty good job of uh, standing up for myself. We'll see. We'll see. Here we go. All right. Joe dented our, um, our Amazon rating. He dinged it down. Oh. What? <laughs> Did you? <gasps> I gave four out of five stars. What? And it wasn't five out of five for that. Because, like, look, oh, no. here's my rationale. <laughs> First he of has all, a good rationale. Was it five stars? Was it all five stars before I gave you four? Oh, my God. <laughs> now I feel really bad. So far, there's been six reviews, and five of them have been five-star reviews. But is that believable? Like, I was no, trying to get I, some you, authenticity. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. <laughs> Whoever sees something that's all five stars, like, okay, what is this, Moby yeah. Dick? Like his mom and his, all his friends. That's true. And I, what I, is this, war and, and I peace? Can, I can appreciate that perspective. <laughs> I mean, it's like when you go to the doctor, right? And they give you the thing, and it says, like, well, how would you rate your pain on a scale of one to ten? Mm-hmm. Ten being the worst imaginable pain you could possibly imagine. Well, like... Who would ever put 10? Like, maybe some people. Would they be like, okay, I can imagine like being lit on fire while I'm alive, while I'm stabbed in the eyeballs, and someone's like (laughs) gnawing my genitals off. (laughs) No, it's not 10. I just have an ache right here. It's probably more like a two, if you put it that way. And then they're not going to take it seriously. Right, there's no authenticity there. So I was trying to help you out. Totally. (laughs) People can come and they see, because what he wrote was really nice, so people can see, like, oh. This is a legitimate four-star. Yeah, like. this guy doesn't even know this other guy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going back to change it. No, don't. Out of principle. I don't. I don't want to. <laughs> I think it's good. Uh, but I do like the book a lot. And I was actually trying to pull up 
your hilarious essay about trying to hack it in a Zen <laughs> Zendo, yeah. right? In Evanston, was that what yeah. it was? Yeah. It's like so, this first person account of Gavin trying to <clears throat> do like a retreat or something like a, well, it was just beginners night you know Tuesday nights it was just one night <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was Tuesday nights you know and and uh, and the, the Chicago Zen Center in Evanston and okay. and so yeah I was just going and my um, I don't know if it still would because I've been sitting on my own a little bit now but my foot would always fall asleep. <laughs> In the lotus, the half lotus mm-hmm. position, you know, mm-hmm. and there's part of the meditation was a, a walking meditation. So you would sit for like 25 minutes and then get up and you would uh, walk around the room, you know, <laughs> yeah. walk around the room and um, and my foot was <laughs> always just dead. <laughs> so you're dead. limping. Sleep. I'm limping. Like I, I describe it, it as Igor like. <laughs> so I'm trying to like not pitch forward in these robes, you know. Oh, you get to wear robes? Yeah, you wear the robe. And, and you're dragging your foot around. I'm dragging my foot. I can't, my foot, and it's, you know, that stinging sensation. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> and so I almost tripped, like, over over my robe, and I described that experience of, of doing that. Literally falling on your face. Yeah, almost so in front of Tuesdays? the Zen master. How many Tuesdays did you do? Just a couple. Like, just <laughs> and like, it happened every time? Um, yeah, per, some variation of that. Yeah, sometimes it was worse than others. You know? <laughs> this is sort of after you got your long education in religious studies. Yeah. Both a PhD and a master's, right? Yeah. And um, so what was that? I mean, I, I, I want to talk we're about We're starting it. here? Yeah, yeah. We're, we're just flowing around. We're doing it Mark so like, stuff. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Just say right. go. So... Uh, like a lot of people come to Zen because they've already kind of been through their native religion and so they're sort of still wandering and seeking and not quite finding the truth for them yeah. but um, talk about that transition like what, how did you go from you know spending most of your formative years in the um, Christian tradition and learning theology and learning about religion to wanting to sit in a Zendo the weekend like what was that yeah about? well in some ways it's 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 not as uh outside the box as it sounds because it's it fits with my contemplative personality um mm-hmm. and even when I was um identified as a Christian I uh was always drawn to the mystics and the contemplative tradition within Christianity and as I went through my seminary education, I took courses on other religions and um, and found, you know, these in, in any tradition, there are these streams of mystical and con- contemplative uh, people um, that I was always most drawn to those within any particular tradition. And I would say my my um, perspective on the world as it does in your 20s was just expanding rapidly and it was through this religious education and being exposed to other cultures through the kinds of uh, religions that were practiced in different parts of the world. So I was going to, I don't know how familiar you are with Quakerism, but I was going to Quaker meetings, which is like a fully sit in silence, um, at least, uh, you know, one branch of Quakerism is you go in and you sit for an hour. Hmm. Um, I didn't know that. People can stand up if they're so moved and speak. Hmm. Uh, you know, that's, but you're waiting kind of in, in, the, in the larger presence, you know, hmm. of the spirit. So that has very Zen-like qualities hmm. to it. Um, and when, you know, I left any kind of formal religious, you know, um, participation, uh, I eventually, you know, started reading more about Zen Buddhism, reading, um, people, uh, like Peter Matheson, mm-hmm. David Suzuki, not, is it David Suzuki? Mm-hmm. Daisette Suzuki, DT Suzuki. DT. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so when we moved to Chicago, I just kind of poked around and, and found, found one. I was just pulling up your um, CV, a little bit about your education, your dissertation and your PhD in religion at the University of Florida. The dissertation was Howling About the Land, 
religion, social space, and wolf reintroduction in the southwestern United States. It's that pretty specific. <laughs> well, dissertations are specific. They have to be. But um, were you sort of, I mean, it seems like a pretty unique uh, path to take in religious studies. Like, did you find yeah. an audience for it there where people just like, what? what are you doing? Like, was there any precedent for it where you were? Um, well, it was an unusual program and it, it's sort of, um, so it was the first program to offer a PhD in religion and nature, Mm -hmm. um, in, in the country. There were some master's programs that were like religion and ecology, but that field really arose in sort of the, let's say early Mm nineties. And then, um, by the time I was entering a PhD program, there was people. There were enough people that had put together a curriculum that they could launch a PhD program. So yes, it was unusual. Yes, that kind of mm-hmm. dissertation was unusual. Um, the the field of religion and animals is is fairly new, although the humanities have been um, expanding. You know, mm-hmm. but they started. They start with. I mean, the word humanities includes just the word, I mean, it's humans, just mm-hmm. study, you know, human beings. And, and so, um, studying animals has begun to broaden that field in different ways. So I was kind of, uh, you know, on the cusp of that new, a new generation that was beginning to open those kinds of question, research questions up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one thing I love about reading your writing is you're such a, a, a great writer, and I love the way that you you respect the language so much. And um, you were talking about the root word of of uh, humanities, and I, I just pulled up this quote um, from your forthcoming book, Channel Coyotes. Do you say coyotes or coyotes? Coyotes. <laughs> what do you say? Coyotes. <laughs> I say coyotes too. Yeah, right? I think that's right. But I don't think I always say coyotes. Do you mix it up, do you? Now I question myself. (laughs) Coyotes. So your forthcoming book, Channel Coyotes, you say, Ever since I have met the Channel Coyotes, the city has become more animated for me, in the root sense of the word, anima, to possess breath, spirit, or soul. The Koyukon Koyukon people? Koyukon. Koyukon people live in a forest full of eyes. I live in a city full of eyes. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So what is it like to live in a city full of eyes? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so a lot of people think of cities as dead spaces, as, as, as spaces that aren't full of life. They put the city in opposition to nature in a kind of binary that's been, um, you know, kind of part of our history uh, in America, and and yet, my finding myself in the city, my discovery of the city, was uh, not true to that binary. And getting to know the city meant for me getting to know my non-human neighbors, <laughs> and discovering the ways that they move through the city, and. The idea of a city being full of eyes is, for me, a reminder that other species um, are also dependent on this shared spot. And we can consider them uh, as, we, as we build our dwellings, as we, you know, down to very personal choices of lifestyle. Um, in terms of what we eat and the energy we use, but also the city infrastructure can be uh, designed in such a way that it accounts for the presence of other species. Mm -hmm. We can restore uh, natural areas in the city. Uh, We can garden in such a way that's welcoming to wildlife. Uh, You know, we can, um, uh, in city parks, we can plant pollinator habitat. um, And also being aware of other animals in the city and the idea of it being full of eyes is the idea that there's some reciprocity there, that they're watching us Mm -hmm. and that, you know, that they, that they care in, you know, in a certain sense about our behaviors, about what we do. And there's a, there's a sort of accountability 
when you think of eyes upon you. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the feeling that it gave me. And I, I think it's interesting because as humans, we think that we're so in control and we're watching wildlife. Like right. bird watchers are watching the birds and we see a coyote, a coyote yeah. and we, um, we're like, oh, I spotted one. But mm-hmm. really, when you look at it, when you say a city full of eyes, it does feel like you're being constantly monitored, and which makes sense if you're an animal of, of prey. Your very livelihood depends on your ability to watch what's going on around mm. you. Yeah, and I think that's true. Generally, we think of ourselves as a kind, in a kind of, um, like you say, a one-directional gaze at other species. That we're always the ones looking at them. So it's subject and object, right? What I'm trying to encourage people to think about and trying to enact in my own life is the idea of of subjecthood among different species mm-hmm. and that it's a two-way gaze it's a mutual gaze we should we should um respect that they are also observing us that they're also um watching us and those that uh native people that is in your that quote i read the koyukon people of alaska yeah. you say that they live in a forest full of eyes um that's kind of the reference point to begin that so mm-hmm. Um, and that seems to be constant through native cultures too, that, mm-hmm. that the way that they understand themselves to live with nature is so different than the Western model. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm guessing New Zealand too, Vanessa is probably, you know, I don't know if the, uh, you know, the Maori share that kind of perspective or not. Very much so with the, um, connection to land and, um, Gavin and I were talking a couple of weeks ago about, um, the Wanganui River. Um, in New Zealand has just been given um, almost like human status like it's been given an entity it's now an entity legally Hmm. Um, and that's huge for just the world that Hmm. a a river has been given you know this this status that it's not I'm not saying just just nature but it's Mm -hmm. got it's got a purpose and it's Mm -hmm. got rights rights yeah um (laughs) Just after that, the Wanganui River flooded um, uh, and yeah. <laughs> said, yes, I do have rights, and uh, showed its strength, um, but has now subsequently gone down. But Well, it makes you think about the river in a different way. It puts a different value on it outside of just use value. Mm-hmm. What, is it, what is it for us? What is it in terms of what we can acquire from it? You put a different stat- a status on it that says no, it has a if there's subjecthood subjectivity to that river it has agency mm. you know and so you enter into a different type of relationship uh you know when you when the label is is another changed, label yeah. and that and, and that that speaks to um you know why when we're thinking about non-human animals in the in the City, you know, and we think about, and you mentioned native cultures that the idea, the idea of personhood transcends human beings. So there's bird people, there's deer people, mm-hmm. there's buffalo people, there's th- all these different peoples. Mm-hmm. And if you have that sort of worldview, mm-hmm. then you're you're coming, you're going to be approaching these other beings with a different level of care and respect. And it's a lack of separation, too. Like, you're sort of breaking down that separation. And even you just saying non-human animals, like, I have to stop and think about that phrase for a second. Yeah. Because it's a strange turn of phrase. But uh, but to even think of ourselves as animals is a stretch for a lot of um, contemporary humans <laughs> to think of themselves yeah. that way. You know? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in the prologue of this new book, you, you mentioned you talk about Plan A <laughs> yeah, and how Plan A didn't really materialize the way that you wanted it to. Yeah, I want to hear a bit more about this as well, because it's living in the city, because uh, one of my questions is mm-hmm. also like, what's your advice for people that feel a little bit stuck in the city mm-hmm. or, you know, this isn't Plan A and now mm-hmm. you're, if you're, especially if you're a, a country person or somebody that wants to being near in nature, like, do you have advice for yeah. people? Because um, one of the things you wrote was, you know, you're lashing yourself to this place. And I'm like, oh, that's a really interesting mm. way of putting that. Like, mm. how do you, you know, put roots down in a in a city? Yeah. So I think this is a um, this is a challenge of our time, really, because a lot of people find themselves 
uh, moving to urban areas um, or um, either out of necessity uh, for work or or because they want to be where the action is, mm-hmm. you know, or both. Um, for me, it was for work. And my plan A was kind of a cabin on the side of a mountain, you know, like I have very, you know, idealistic visions of me, you know, growing most of my own food and, and, uh, you know, uh, chopping my own wood and, and that sort of thing. A Walden existence. Yeah. And maybe someday that'll happen. Who knows? But, you know, uh, there are things that are outside of our control. And so part of my plan A was, you know, I thought I was going to be a professor. I thought I was going to teach and... Um, but then I start, I came to work for the Center for Humans and Nature. Their offices are in Chicago. We picked up and we came to, you know, the third largest metropolitan area in the United States. And so all of a sudden I was an urbanite and I needed to figure out how to connect. You know? And your offices aren't like tucked away in some green belt somewhere. They're um, above the uh, Civic Opera House, I believe, right? Yeah, in Downtown. the Civic Opera House. Yeah. In, in the, the Civic. In the loop, yeah. in the loop. Wow. But when I went to visit Gavin at his office for the first time, we went. I went up like a million stories or whatever in the <laughs> elevator and got up there, and it's literally like an ivory tower. It's like everything's white, <laughs> and I was like, "Wow, what a bunch of academics! This is. I can feel the brain power in here." And I go in there, and Gavin's like, "Hey, come on in. Check out these peregrine falcons that are nesting <laughs> uh, in this skyscraper across the way." You know. And just like always having that perspective of being able to look at the city environment in a completely different way was just like, that was something I wanted to be around more of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Many, there are so many threads of, of nature weaving themselves throughout the city. So, you know, I just walked, I started walking everywhere, you know, and um and exploring and, and being on the lookout, opening my eyes and ears to to what was here. And so part of my coming to know this place, and this would happen anywhere that I move, whether, you know, a rural area or an urban area, is, you know, who's here? You know, who's who, who are newcomers here? Who are migrants here? Um, you know, speaking of, you know, the non-human animals, not just human migra- migration, but... Mm-hmm. You know, who's, who has, who, what species have always been in this area? What are the species that are invasive? You know, what are the species that are um, just stopping through for a visit or seem to be growing in population? And just, you know, getting to know their stories was a way to get to know the story of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So really looking, like really looking. Yeah, being attentive to what's around me and um, throughout the different seasons um, and yeah and exploring from there and kayaking to work <laughs> kayaking to work <laughs> so that was a um, so that's another uh, cool thing about Chicago is um, probably underused at this point but um, the Chicago River you know passes through the heart of Chicago well by where I live um, there's a canal that was um, built you know to connect to the Chicago River originally used as a sewage you know disposal uh, channel conduit um, but has improved dramatically over the years so that now it's a wildlife magnet you know so I, I think the first time I got on the water was for like a Father's Day canoe trip and we saw, you know, probably 20 great blue herons along the way, along with other, you know, uh, species, mainly avian life. But um, so I started thinking about what, how can I get on this water more? And so I bought an inflatable kayak that I could, you know, pack on my back and 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 inflate and get on the water. And so then I got it in my head that I, you know, you know, it'd be really cool is if I if I kayaked all the way downtown and just saw different parts of the city from the perspective of the water. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, I kind of made a, you know, a quasi, you know, just kind of having fun with it. I called it a kayak to work, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. day. Cause even though it's terribly inefficient way to get to work from where I live, How long uh, did it take? I think it was because I was, you know, 
tweeting and taking photographs and everything. <laughs> it took me like five hours. So <laughs> if you're truly commuting, you would just have to turn right back around. And of course, my shoulders were exhausted by the time I got down there. I can remember seeing, you know, the, the uh, Sears Tower and, uh, you know, kind of just like when you're on the highway and you see the Sears Tower mm-hmm. from a long way away. Yeah. But it seemed like I was getting no closer <laughs> to ever <laughs> actually <laughs> arriving. Uh, Is he going with the flow of the river? You are, it? but it's a very slight, it's yeah. a very slight mm-hmm. flow. Did yeah. you kayak on? No, I underplated <laughs> my kayak and took the metro home. <laughs> yeah. Easy way. Yeah. yeah. But so, yeah, I got it. I, I decided to do a kayak to work day, kind of like people do bike to work days. Yeah. And I think I, I probably do it again this year. And, and enough people, you know, when they saw that I was calling it that and I did that, were like, oh, I want to do that. So there might be a group of us this year. And who it, knows? Yeah. We'll start, may start a movement. <laughs> <laughs> Critical mass. Yeah. I think you should try kayaking kayakers. to work. Yeah, why not? Yeah, you'd have to put it on wheels, but <laughs> right, not yeah. on the river. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So, um, how did this interest in, interest in coyotes come about? Like I, mm-hmm. I mean, so you and I both grew up in Oklahoma. Yeah. And um, you know, I think you talk about this in the book. Maybe I think I read this, but um, the idea that coyotes in the in the urban environment don't yap and howl like they do. Um, out in the country because I remember growing up um, and being out on the back porch on the, out on the back deck you know you'd hear um, some uh, a little pack of coyotes starting up and yipping and then one on the other side of mm-hmm. the prairie start up and then it's like they start this back and forth this call and response and they kind of like swell into this cacophony of like howls and yips and it's it's eerie but it's just mesmerizing you just can't Mm. not stop and listen to it Mm -hmm. um so i always knew coyotes is just this thing this like force and this presence that was around Mm -hmm. you know and something to be kind of feared in a way but um but never really getting close enough to have any real reason to fear them Mm -hmm. you know so was it was there something about your oklahoma understanding of coyotes that was already in you or how did you get interested them here in the Chicago environment. Yeah, it didn't really have much to do with Oklahoma. Um, I just, I found it fascinating that they were living in urban areas. And and I'm not sure where I first found out that they were in Chicago, like who told me first. But um, you're right that they, they don't make as much noise in the city, but they do sometimes. And the first year I was here, I was reading a book at night and all of a sudden I heard, uh, you know, a couple, I'm assuming a, 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 like a couple of coyotes that, you know, started yipping and, and, and I, I was just sitting in my, you know, third floor apartment mm-hmm. building and I, and it brought me straight to a camping trip I'd taken in New Mexico where they, that's experience you described of being surrounded, mm-hmm. um, and, and hearing that back and forth um, just, you know, tickled back of my neck, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I think the, the reason that they, that, that that's fascinating to me, it's fascinating to me on a number of levels. You know, they're incredible ad- adapters. Mm-hmm. You know, their, their behavioral flexibility has allowed coyotes to, populate the entire United States now. Their urban they're coming to urban areas in the Midwest has been relatively recent. They but they were in Los Angeles for, you know, since the beginning of the twentieth century. Hmm. Um, here in Chicago they probably made it here in about the eighties, hmm. um, maybe the seventies. Mm-hmm. But now there's like some people say three or four thousand coyotes. You're never in Chicago. You're never laying your head on your pillow without being, you know, close to a coyote somewhere. <laughs> you just don't know it. You just don't know it. So that's the other thing that's cool about them is that they've done, they they're here, but they do a great job of keeping steering clear of us. But I think I uh, so I, I find them fascinating for their their 
adaptive abilities and I see like a parallel in my own experience of needing to adapt to the city. I also love the trickster element of coyotes and legend. Um, and, uh, you know, it just seems so appropriate that they would muddy the boundary of urban versus rural, mm-hmm. you know, so well by being here, embodying that, mm-hmm. you know, and crossing those boundaries, breaking those quote unquote rules, you know, mm-hmm. of where they're supposed to be mm-hmm. and, um, and, and getting along quite well in the process. Um, you know, I, I, I read about them. So, you know, statistically, uh, urban coyotes, um, they they tend to fare better than their rural counterparts. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. Huh. The only thing that um, the leading cause of death is is you know traffic fatalities, but but they're um, they there's t- something about traffic patterns too. Like they can understand. They start to recognize. They do. Yeah. They. Um, so the story that first comes to mind with that is I was uh, watching a video that Stan Gert, who's the researcher from Ohio State, who's been studying. Chicago's coyotes for a couple decades, and um, he had a, an amazing video that you know, it was like from a security camera. It looked like you know, with, and a black and white you know kind of pixelated uh, street. Uh, I think in Lincoln Park, but I'm not sure about that. And there's you know a couple of cars going by and a bicyclist, and it's late at night, you know, and a coyote trots you know, on screen uh, to the corner and waits for the light to turn red <laughs> and then trots across the street. And yeah, so there's some, uh, some evidence that the coyotes that, are, that survive, they're incredibly intelligent animals. Mm-hmm. So the ones that survive, they learn this, uh, you know, to the extent they can, this, the flow of traffic. It's and, amazing. Yeah. I, yeah, something that you said reminds me that when I first moved to Chicago in 98, I feel like I started to hear something about coyotes in Chicago. But at the time, I think it was always framed, or maybe I framed it as like this this really tragic story about the suburbs being overly developed, and so it was literally pushing the coyote populations into the city. Hmm. Like they just didn't have anywhere else to expand, and so they were just being sort of like squashed back in. And that's a very... Um, you know, that's a very uh, reductionist kind of uh, perspective on it that doesn't really give the coyotes much of a chance. Mm-hmm. But I, I like your perspective a lot. I and mean, kind of, maybe it's this kind of new understanding of and just the fact that they've uh, populated so much and they've done so well. But that actually, no, they've been adapting far longer than humans mm. have. So Yeah, and yeah, and it, they um, and they've lived in cities since Tenochtitlan in central Mexico Mm. where the coyote was a a god in the pantheon there. Mm. I mean, they, so they, there are, now coyotes have different individual personalities, but at least, you know, a percentage of them actively seeks out human inhabitation Mm. for the things that it provides, um, including food you know, sources and... And are they nocturnal coyotes? Or so the ones in the city, that's been one of their adaptations yeah. is that they largely move about at night. But they're not usually like that. In rural areas, they're more active in the daytime. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I've heard this. So someone was t- talking to me the other day just about a lot of animals that we think are nocturnal, but hmm. actually it's just that we don't... They're so clever at us not seeing hmm. them during yeah. the day. Yeah, and this also probably changed. has to do with traffic, you know, yeah. and, uh-huh. and being able to move move around more yeah. freely. Yeah. Graham was uh, biking to work along Jackson one mm. morning, six a.m., and uh, he was he was the only person biking, and a coyote was on the on the footpath sidewalk coming like, oh. past him. It was like they were doing like the coyote had finished his work in town. <laughs> it was coming past, and Graham was going. In. It was like an opposite. Con- clocking in and, and clocking it out, and it didn't even look at him. It just went. Graham's your husband. You're talking about. No, there is that great uh, Looney Tunes cartoon of the coyote clocking in and the um, sheepdog oh clocking in. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you've got a new book out called Wildness. Yes, um, co-edited. Can you explain your idea, because you've explained it to me before, but can you explain to the listeners um, your idea between the difference between wildness and wilderness? Mm. Sure. So wilderness is... Um, oftentimes thought of as a special place. It may be a, a, a particularly scenic place. It may be a recreational space that people um, can come in, but they're 
it's a leave no trace. Um, you know, they're, they're not, uh, in most cases, allowed to live or work in those places that have been zoned for wilderness. For some people, wilderness is a sacred space. It's like sort of the the purest distillation of nature um, and its most monumental and mighty incarnations. Um, but wildness is a, is a process. It's a life-sustaining process. It can be associated with evolution, but it can also be associated with independence, self-will. Um, and so sometimes it gets, it has different meanings depending on the context in which it's being used. So it can mean something that's dangerous or out of control, like that's so wild, you know, or that place is, is wild. But the way we were primarily, and we address some of that in the book, um, particularly in terms of the ways that wildness can be used uh, against native peoples, you know, like the wild and savage and the way that it was used to characterize uh, behaviors um, for, for justification for conquest. You know, it was uncultivated. It was uncivilized. Therefore, European people of European descent needed to, to control the land, right? So, but wildness in conservation circles uh, is often thought of as an ideal, like um, that you would want something to be as wild as possible, you know? Um, but we were working off of a definition that Aldo Leopold puts forward about the land, that it's the land's capacity for self-renewal. Mm -hmm. So... Um, and that's a wildness that can include us. It's not absent of human beings. We can shape the trajectory of the land so that, um, so that, for instance, it's more biodiverse and our presence need not be a harmful one. So that's being participating in this wild process and this wildness. So we talked about wildness in two primary ways, that there's wildness across the landscape from the most urban of areas to the most sort of monumental wilderness areas. So wildness across uh, in, in a continuum at different scales. So from the scale of the, you know, pocket park in the most urban of areas or the the sunflower pushing up through the concrete, you know, there's a wild being like asserting itself, you know. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and then we talked about wild kinship, that we are kin to other species, that we share this wildness with other, um, other beings. And, and that we can, um, by virtue of being attuned to that wildness, by um, practicing a sort of, uh, you know, what might call it a wild practice, um, we can nurture wildness, cultivate wildness in ourselves and in our, the landscapes of which we are a part. And then there's a number of examples in the book, uh, place-based examples of where people are doing that in, in their various professions and practices. And it's so interesting, too, because, again, the word wild or wildness can be so uh, relative to your perspective and your culture and, and your socioeconomic situation. Mm -hmm. it, like your essay that you shared from the book Wildness, um, <clears throat> I love it when you you're, you meet these people at the at Green Corps mm -hmm. uh, crew. They're um, ground. They're like uh, landscape uh, keepers at this nature preserve, and and these are these are uh, young people who grew up in the west side of Chicago, and it's you know it's super blighted, uh, lower income neighborhood, uh, famously um, crime infested. Um, but they the way that the, the way that those people talk about. Wildness as like that's how they see their neighborhoods that their neighborhoods are wild, you know And so when they hear the word they're thinking about chaos and guns and drugs and all the social problems but then I like that this this uh, one uh, gentleman that you interviewed he said uh, When he's in the nature preserve he says I don't call this wild I call this nature because this is peaceful, you know, and, and this is what this is what the hood should be like, he said, peaceful. You mm -hmm. know? And I just think it's interesting that uh, words can just get 
thrown around, but uh, it, it all depends on your where your center of gravity is, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that was an interesting um, part of doing that essay, you know, for the book because it was really challenging my own views of what wildness means and the different ways that it can be used and deployed. Um, yeah. And so, but, you know, what I was exploring in that essay was also how the kind of work that they're doing, which you, you can sort of shorthand say a healing of the landscape in the sense of, um, you know, actively uh, encouraging planting native species, plant species mainly, um, and then um, culling invasive species, like buckthorn, yeah, like buckthorn and honeysuckle, um, in order to restore the landscape's vitality, that kind of thing, which can be called sort of form of landscape healing, and that kind of direct work, participation with one's body in that work, oftentimes, um, you know, the people I talked to would describe their own process of healing. Um, doing that kind of work That's because amazing. they were, they could see the, the, the results of this uh, labor on the land and it made those spots uh, the types of places that were inviting and welcoming to them a place of serenity, a place of peace, and they could see the results of that. So um, that, in my mind at least, is a form of kind of practicing uh, wildness, you know, where you're restoring some of your own uh, capacities as a human being. Mm -hmm. Since this is uh, the Farm On mm -hmm. podcast, I should mention that one of the essays in the book by Kurt Miney is about the Driftless region in um, oh, yeah. Wisconsin. In, in, yeah, in Wisconsin, southwestern uh, Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. And so, th without going into too much detail, that region was is an unglaciated region, so it's not as flat as other parts of uh, the Midwest that were, you know, sort of steamrolled by uh, glaciers in the last uh, glacial period. So there's uh, a lot of uh, rise and fall. There's a lot of contours to that land, and he discusses in that essay the what he calls a revolution in farming, because um, after some disastrous, uh, you know, kind of conventional farming that uh, the land was becoming deeply eroded, mm -hmm. they were losing soil, mm -hmm. um, and it was one of the first places where they had a, a collective uh, agreement, you know, established among uh, uh, the CCC, mm -hmm. the Conservation Corps, and the farmers that were there, and they, one of the conscious decisions they made was to start uh, turning what Kirk calls turning with the land, you know, following the contours, you know, and and uh, plowing and uh, tearing the agriculture in such a way that it was adapting to the landscape, not mm -hmm. trying to impose, mm -hmm. simply impose one's preconceived mm -hmm. will upon the, the landscape. Mm -hmm. Kind um, of a permaculture approach, actually, to farming. Yeah, that kind of, you know, that in that same spirit, that same philosophy of, you know, what's here, how do we work with what's here and adapt to it rather than, you know, um, try to always be working against it and at odds, you know, the, the, the sort of classic frontiersman, you know, mm -hmm. breaking the soil and, mm -hmm. and so just plowing in and of itself is a, such an unproductive pro, uh, practice, but it's so widely used that no one even questions it. Yeah. But that's like so destructive to the soil. You're just destroying the microbes in the topsoil every time you do it. So, hmm. um, yeah. So, um, so this is an example where, um, by learning to work with and not against, you know, Kurt sees this as a, a an incredible step forward and an incredible sort of attunement to the wildness of the land. Mm. And so, I, so many of the stories in, in the book are about human beings, like, and deliberately so, who are, are doing that kind of work, whether it's in agriculture um, or whether it's in ranching or, you know, so, so these, these ways of making a living off the land where you're actually, by working with the land, in some cases, making the land a more, um, a more biodiverse, more, mm -hmm. more beautiful, more productive. Mm -hmm. um, another example is uh, Asekia farming in the desert, in the desert southwest, the high desert, where these water ditches are sort of the, the lifeblood of, of the land, but they're 
um, that are cultivated and managed in such a way that they become these corridors of biodiversity mm-hmm. that uh, wouldn't have existed without human management. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to like break through that barrier of humans bad, mm-hmm. always destructive, you know, <laughs> like, um, and show that our behaviors and our actions and our work and our our play can all be integrated, better integrated into our landscapes. Mm-hmm. But working with the ecosystems, Correct. Not, not trying to be the dominant force right. in these ecosystems. Right. Working with the larger wildness, mm-hmm. you know, and... Now, I'm glad you brought it back to the farm on. I was wondering how we were going to actually, like, tie it into the, <laughs> the theme of this podcast. <laughs> but uh, if you hadn't done that, I was going to mention that... Um, the ecologist that you ro- roll with in uh, in your in your book, Channel Coyotes, uh, Seth Magley. Magley, uh-huh. um, uh, I, I saw I saw kind of a, a kinship between this him, the ecologist, and urban farmers, uh-huh. just in the way that he, in the way that ecologists like him see the city environment in a, in a different way. Just, just the fact that they're looking for wild animals. Yeah. They see the city environment as like this place of resources. Yeah. Where's the habitat? Where's the habitat? And that's what I love about urban farmers, too, is they they just they look at things different. They don't look at things, but uh, city development just in terms of um, uh, how much can I sell it for? How much can I make on it? You know, what's the mm-hmm. is the location good for shopping? They're looking at, you know daylight and rainfall and mm-hmm. um, soil type and mm-hmm. and what's the biodiversity in the area you know what are the other species that are there and I just yeah. I love that it's just a it's just a different set of glasses that people are wearing you know yeah there can be a sort of a flipping of the switch moment mm-hmm. where you know before you were only seeing buildings and and the the flip switches and you begin to see the way that vegetation and where it is in the in the green spaces uh, kind of compare it some to reading a book you know where you think where you read the the black marks on the page but when the f- switch flips you realize those black marks can't be there without the white space you know and <laughs> yeah i like that <laughs> Except you're someone who writes in the margins a lot because you've, do, right? you've given me a lot of your old books and they're like, I can barely read them. I'm reading his notes more than I'm reading the actual book. From my student days. Yeah. Um, I went to that website that identifies that animals. I think you must have mentioned it maybe in an email or in your... Mm. and your writings Mm -hmm. Um, and it is addictive the one where you get to identify the animals oh yeah where the picture comes up and Mm, you're like is this what what animal can you see and then you get to choose from some yes Yes, so the Zooniverse is it the Adler Planetarium and the Urban Wildlife Institute's partnership yes so yeah what you're mentioning is that they get so many they have camera traps set up all over the city that take Photographs, uh, you know, if an by motion, if an animal passes in front of the camera, mm. and they have so many photographs that they can't possibly go through them all mm. themselves as a staff. So they've opened it up, crowdsourcing to the yeah. public, cool. and now um, anybody can sit at a computer and identify these animals, and it helps them with their data. Yeah. So fun. And for an hour, I sat there. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, just one more. I'm like, just one more. I'm just one more. <laughs> That's great. Video, it's like video games, but for good. Yeah. <laughs> right. I think I had to stop when I couldn't identify the animal. I'm like, I don't, this isn't one of the ones on here. I think <coughs> there was a new kind of animal. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What else you got for this? Uh, so do you think the coyote is your spirit animal? Oh... I, th- I think, uh, you know, I hate to, you know, to pick, you know, just one that seems wrong to favor. Um, but, yeah, definitely drawn to the coyote as a kind of totemic, you know, uh, force in the city. Um, it just, it, there's so many appealing things about coyotes in addition to their intelligence. I've already mentioned their flex- behavioral flexibility, their ad- adaptive abilities, um, also, they're a medium-bodied or large-bodied mammal carnivore moving throughout the city, so they're compelling for that reason as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, like 
like I also already mentioned, that, that trickster mythology that goes along with Coyote, their disdain for borders, their, you know, sort of uncontainable, you know, uh, and and the laughing aspect of them, you know, they're pulling a prank on us, you know, and they, no matter what we as humans have tried to do, um, and a lot has been done in this country to try to eliminate coyotes, they're stronger than ever, you know, and so just foiling our plans and kind of thumbing their snouts at us is, you know, like, uh, is appealing to me as well. You know, like I get this uncontrollable thing that we have to learn how to adjust to them. So that's one of the reasons that I think they provide such a good urban totem species because their very presence here, like they're not, they might be killed. They might be, some might be removed, you know, for safety reasons, but they're here to stay. So we have to learn how to adapt to them. And there's not too many situations anymore where people have to actively think about adapting to other mm-hmm. animals or having to live alongside them in such a way that that they have to think about their own behaviors and what and what they're doing. Mm. So I like that they provide that in the in the city. What a great opportunity for a little bit of humbling too. You know, just to just to allow humans for just a second to think like maybe I should change. Maybe I should change just a little bit. Right. We don't really have um, many chances to do that, I think. Right. They bring that awareness that we live in a more than human world, even in urban and maybe especially even in urban areas. Um, But the the animal that I single out in the current book that I'm working on um, as a kind of spirit of Chicago animal is the black crown night heron. Do you know black crown night heron? I don't. Mm-hmm. Tell me about them. So, first of all, what's the book you're working on currently? The Channel Coyotes. Oh, okay. Same book. Wrapping it up. Gotcha. Yeah. So, um, so a striking, at least in my eyes, a strikingly beautiful species. They have these, you know, um, black or gray crowns on the top of their heads. Um, they have these two white feathers that extend, you know, off the back of their heads and they have a football shaped body about that size and shape. And, um, at least the, uh, adult non-breeding black crown night herons have yellow legs that, you know, and and then they have this red, deep red eye in this in this head so they so to me they um so the cool story about them in terms of chicago is that they used to live in the calumet and breed in the calumet region and i think there was an assumption that they they didn't live in close proximity to people at least for breeding purposes that they sort of chose more uh rural areas uh and, um, and then uh, a faction of them f- flew into Chicago and started nesting hmm. near the Lincoln Park Zoo, hmm. which, as you know, is only like a mile and a half from the loop. I mean, this is dense urban yeah. area. Now, it's yeah. near the lake, so that might have something to do with it. But they, they moved to the, the, uh, the pond there that, that's just outside of the zoo. Yeah. And that was, I think, in 2007, if, if I'm right about that. And they've come back every year since, and their population, their breeding population just grows and grows. Now there's, I think, 300 nesting pairs, and they're, uh, you know, they have that rattly heron, you know, uh, vocalization, and so they're very noticeable up in their nests in the trees, and they poop a lot, and so, mm-hmm. you know, there's that too. Um, the, so their presence is felt, and... Um, I've seen them, you know, when I've kayaked on the North Shore Channel, and um, I've seen them, of course, at the zoo, and I've, I've seen them in other places, and just that red eye just really burrowed its way <laughs> into my consciousness. And we talked at the beginning of this about animals watching us. Mm-hmm. So that that is an animal that you can really feel that observation. The city has eyes and they are blood red. (laughs) Yeah. Laser laser eyes. So I I play with that idea like here's this bird that kind of looks prehistoric living in these modern urban conditions. You know, it's carved out a niche in the city and it's watching us and 
Um, and so, uh, you know, sort of that feeling of um, an animal is thriving in the city despite what we might have thought, you know, previously. So it's sort of confounding our notions mm-hmm. of what can live here, where things can live. And, uh, and at the same time, it's this sort of uh, this bird that sort of calls to mind this deep time experience of like, uh, you know, what, what has been here before, what can be here in the future? Is there a way to reconcile our um, landscapes with the landscapes of other species? Mm-hmm. And so that I kind of put forward as a candidate of, you know, the spirit of Chicago, you know, that we can, we know we're being watched. What will we do with that? 20 years' time, they'll change the Chicago flag to that bird. That'd be great. Yeah, just a big red eye. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, that idea of deep time is, I feel like, is popping up a lot now in, in like, sort of thinking and writing and um, geological time, too, you know, Mm -hmm. now that we've reached the the new human epoch, what is it called? Anthropocene, I think. Mm -hmm. People refer to it like that. Um, But to me, when you start to think about things in deep time, it's somehow like very comforting in a weird way, Mm -hmm. in in a way that like apocalyptic visions aren't, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And it just reminded me of something from the new book where you talk about... um, where you talk about the uh, idea, I guess it's actually Leopold's, Aldo Leopold's idea of um, the evolutionary process isn't just evolution, it's actually a story, like the great story of the universe, like the odyssey of the, of the entire universe, which seems to me like a kind of a Hindu idea as well, that, hmm. you know, don't worry about the suffering that's going on right now, because this is just part of the process of a... 500,000 year old process. Yeah, I think uh, Gary Snyder's another author who plays with that idea a lot, you know, and it's uh, the effect it has on me is, you mentioned the word humbling before, and I think that that, it does have, it can have uh, a kind of um, impact that produces a sort of peace that you know that you're just a small part of a much, much bigger show. Mm you as an individual and us as a species, you know, that we are just one of the grand experiments that the earth has heaved up upon, you know, the shore to see if we would work out. And if we don't work out, we don't. Yeah. But why doesn't that make people nihilist? Hmm. I mean, it, it could possibly have that effect on, that's why I said one one effect could be that it's a very humbling sort of experience and, you know, and you, have this, uh, and it sort of reinforces this I, the the idea that you want to do your best with the sort of gifts and tools that you've mm-hmm. been given, um, knowing you know that uh, that even though they're passing away, that you that it makes sort of this existence more precious. Mm-hmm. It's a gift, right? Mm-hmm. How lucky you are to be here and be a part of that show. Right. But it could have that impact. I mean, I can see, especially you know. You could say, well, nothing matters then, you know, mm-hmm. like eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we will die. And, you know, I suppose it, it could go that direction, too. But that's why we're such a strange species. We're capable of so, mm-hmm. <laughs> such a range of um, behavior and um, and, uh, you know, no, it's something I struggle with all the time, because I think in, in some Eastern uh, psychologies, there's the idea that, like, stop trying to change everything. Don't try to change everything. Because you're just trying to assert your own control over something that you can't possibly control. And so um, I was, I was, that tension between those two, Uh not just two, but different ideas that, um, that there's this big, big story going on and we can leave our mark and try to make things better, but really it's futile because it's all out of our control anyway. I don't know. I'm always just... That drives me crazy. Uh, I know what you mean. Um, <laughs> it's like... Uh, you can know, you explain that to me? <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> I can break that down for you. Um, you know, it's an interesting... I think of the Bodhisattva, you know, vow, in you know, which is, in short, you know, that once one achieves enlightenment, it's it's not... The work has just begun in some ways, that you, your life of service begins and you don't rest until 
everyone has achieved enlightenment. So it's impossible, you know, thou. Um, but see, I think, you know, that if one experiences that feeling of being part of a much larger story, then I think that the reason that, it, I'll just speak from my perspective, the impact that I that that can have on someone is you lose that sense of of desperately clinging to your own self interest. You have a, a feeling of being part of a much larger self, and it can and does, at least for some, and for like the bodhisattva to use an example, engender a kind of compassion for life because you are so connected, mm-hmm. and you've lost that sense of individual, you know. Uh, rushing to protect your individual identity at all times, right? Mm-hmm. I just remember challenging. Uh, this kind of is 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 what you're getting at, I think. Which is so we can kind of play these tricks in our minds. Um, I remember um, talking to uh, a Buddhist teacher and saying, like, why is there this? continual counsel not to be attached to things. To me, attachment is not a bad word. Attachment, we, mm-hmm. our fiercest loves make us who we are. Mm-hmm. Why shouldn't we be passionate about those things? Why shouldn't we be attached, you know, to those things? And of course, I mean, uh, you know, there's a, there's a debilitating and a, and, a, and a hurtful attachment. And, you know, there's a kind of freeing of these desires and a recognizing when one is being, you know, I get that, but I was kind of pressing him, like, what is this counsel, these, these sort of high ideals of not being attached? That, like there's me, some good attachments. That, yeah, that, mm-hmm. to me, that seems destructive. Mm-hmm. And his sort of, you know, zen-like reply to me, uh, you know, which is not to directly answer the question, mm-hmm. um, but to press me a little further. And I'm not sure I totally understand it, but it made, it, it made sense at the, <laughs> at the time he said, he said, you're a father, right? And I said, yes. And he said, and when your son cries at night, um, what do you do? And I said, I go to him. And he said, just nodded his head, you know, as though <laughs> he just mm-hmm. delivered mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the gavel of wisdom, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so I think that that's what you're wrestling with, that tension of that passivity or that att- that tension between shouldn't we not be attached to things and, mm-hmm. and shouldn't we be, you know, sort of um, conduits of, of compassion, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's probably just the language that trips us up a mm-hmm. lot, mm-hmm. Um, and also just the impossibility of logic like that. Like you, the there isn't really an answer. It's just mm-hmm. part of part of just being in the world, right? Vanessa, can you please bring us back down to? No, because well, it's it's interesting because you just said compassion, and that's my question. I um, connect to a group called Compassionate, um, and it's um, so. My question is how how do you live compassionately? What what's your answer to that? If you what what does it mean to live a compassionate life? Like in terms of other species, or yeah, interactions within, with other yeah, species, yeah, within or? the city, with nature, what what what's your answer to that? One? Yeah, well, I think it goes back to you know some of what we've discussed, mm. like um, you know, an, a larger compassion for the well-being um, of other species sometimes means um, getting out of their way, those that can't live easily alongside of alongside of us. Um, sometimes that means um, restoring lands and habitats so that um, that they have uh, those places that that they can dwell and and so that requires a sort of compassionate stance of 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 knowing what their needs are mm-hmm. so um, being attentive to their species life history and um, and how they move through the world and um, and then sometimes that compassion involves uh, reconciliation. It involves a, it involves a, um, looking for ways that we can adapt our living spaces so that we are our our lives and our stories are more uh, woven together with more integrity. Yeah. I agree. I agree too. <laughs> I'm glad we're all in agreement. <laughs> Um, 
Kevin, this has been really now great. Now our minds are one. <laughs> yeah. No, you, you and I have had the pleasure to like sit and chill and talk about life and stuff quite a bit, but I really appreciate just having some t- time to have an intentional conversation about your writing and your life's work. Yeah. So can't wait for the book to um, get published when it does, and um, it's just a fascinating, multidimensional uh, kind of bit of research and poetry and storytelling about uh, coyotes and everything else that they touch so thank you so much for being on the podcast thank you Joe and thank you Vanessa to hear more episodes featuring interviews with agriculturists artists and activists on the front lines of the food movement and to read my essays on everything from zucchini to zen visit dharmaonthefarm.com until next time Farm on.